You know, honestly, I can't imagine a clearer, more accurate declaration of Christian marriage than that song. I won't give up on us, and I will keep looking up. That's really what we've seen throughout this entire series that we're bringing in for a landing today. The fact that if we look up, if we look to God for His grace and His truth, for His life, joy, passion, all of those great things, then we never have to give up on marriage. We never have to give up on marriage as an institution. Whether we're married or not, we can continue to believe in it. We can continue to honor this thing that God ordained, this thing that God created, this thing that God gives as a gift. And that's really one of the things that we've seen throughout this is we've looked at how God desires husbands and wives for one man, one woman, one life to come together, not only to live happily ever after, but to also live happily even after. How, how we looked at the first week, how you grow and mature and develop the, the excitement and the passion of the honeymoon across years and even decades. And we, we looked in the, in the second installment of this of how, you know, God really desires husbands and wives to protect and to promote the primacy of the husband-wife relationship above and beyond the urgency of the parent-child relationship and to live happily even after the kids show up. And the blessing that the kids can be, but the challenges that come along with that. Last week we saw how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, can allow marriages to thrive and to flourish not only after conflict or a fight, but even in the midst of a conflict or a disagreement or a fight between husband and wife. Now throughout this series, not only have we talked specifically about marriage, but We've also kind of developed some faith skills along the way. We, we've developed some spiritual muscle memory. Specifically, we've seen as it applies to marriage the fact that the gospel, the essence of the Christian faith, makes everything that it touches better. It makes everything stronger. It makes everything healthier. It makes everything more vibrant. It makes everything more beautiful. And our job as followers of Christ is to... Bring the gospel to bear, to allow it to infiltrate and to permeate every single facet of life. So that we are always asking the question, how does the gospel, how does my faith work out? How does it play out and live out in every single situation that I encounter? And I believe as we bring this series in for Atlanta today, we are going to pick up the subject that presents the absolute single greatest challenge to the gospel as it relates to marriage. Here's the challenge. Is the gospel strong enough? Is it, is it powerful enough? Is it robust enough on its own to allow a husband and wife to live happily even after a tragedy, even after a, a spiritual or a relational or an emotional trauma of some sort? Does the gospel matter even that? even through those kind of circumstances. You know, when you think about trauma or you think about tragedy in life, particularly as it relates to a husband and wife, some of you right now are thinking, man, that, that's not even me. I could have been to brunch early today. But the fact of the matter is that 90% of us will at some point or another be married. But even if you never marry, 
The reality is that life happens to all of us. And so what we're going to discover today as it relates specifically to marriage actually matters in every single life that is here today or watching online. The fact of the matter is God does show up in the midst of tragedy. But there are a number of folks here today who are married and maybe you have lived for years having survived a tragedy and you've gotten through it or maybe maybe even right now you're in the middle of a massive challenge or a struggle or a hurt or a grief or a sorrow. At the risk of of being a spoiler to my own sermon today, I want you to know the gospel absolutely rises to the challenge of every single grief and every single sorrow. The gospel of Jesus Christ absolutely matters and absolutely comforts and heals. But it's important for you and me to understand from the jump that we have to live it out. We have choices to make in order for the gospel to make a difference. Now when I talk about a tragedy, I think it's important that we understand what we're talking about because one person's tragedy is another person's blip on the radar screen. They hit all of us in different ways in different times and based on where we are at different times in our lives. I would suggest to you that a tragedy in the context of this sermon is any circumstance, any situation that creates a sense of grief or a sense of loss in somebody's life. But I want you to notice how personal and how subjective that definition is. Kind of like they say about beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The same thing is true about grief and sorrow. Sorrow is in the eye of the beholder. It's not up to me to determine whether or not it equates or rates as a significant grief in your life or for you to do that in my life. The fact of the matter is when you hurt, you hurt. When I hurt, I hurt. We get to determine what creates grief and sorrow in our lives. For some people in marriage, that grief or that sorrow could be the loss of a child. And sociologists and researchers are conflicted over the effect that that kind of a grief has on marriage. Some studies report that couples who suffer the loss of a child are 90% more likely to divorce than those who don't. While other research suggests that the divorce rate remains unaffected and actually point to some couples who grow closer together because they grieved together. The fact of the matter is how we grieve is an intimately personal choice that every single one of us makes. And I would suggest to you that one of the things that we get to do in marriage is we get to allow our spouse room to grieve in their own way, at their own rate. You, you don't get to determine how long the grief can last and then tell your spouse, hey, suck it up and move on. It's imperative that we give each other the grace and the space necessary to grieve an appropriate God-honoring way in our own lives and in our own ways. It could be the loss of a child. It may be the loss of a parent. It could be the loss of a job. That can create a very real sense of, of grieving and loss in, in somebody's life. In, in a family, it can create a lot of stress. It, it may be a, a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter that you, you pray for and you hope returns to the family fold. But until that happens, there's this sense of sorrow there's this sense of grief that you have and it's in that context whatever the grief whatever the tragedy might be 
that husbands and wives have to figure out how to grieve together. You know, throughout this series, I've used a lot of examples from Julie's in my life. We've been married now for 25 years and are having more fun in the empty nest than we ever imagined possible. But along the way, we've had to learn how to read each other. How many of you know that you've got to learn how to read a spouse? Could I just see a show of hands? You know one of my favorite preacher lines? I, I love it. I don't use this a lot because I'm not like, you know, kind of a typical preacher. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I like it when I watch guys on TV or, or speakers and communicators on TV and they're, you know, they get kind of really fired up. They say something and, and the church doesn't respond like they want them to. And, they'll be, and this is what they say. This is a great line. They'll go, I wish I had half a church up in here. I wish I had half a church to help me preach. I like, I like preacher lines like that. That's just, you know, I'm kind of a gym rat. I, I enjoy that. But, but, the fact of the matter is, we have to learn how to read our spouse. We have to learn how to love our spouse through grief and through tragedy. We have to learn how to read ourselves. You know, there are very few of us learn skills and tools for coping with grief and sorrow. We just kind of are making it up as we go along. And it's against this backdrop that the Bible provides an amazing paradigm for processing pain. It's an amazing way that God has given us in the Bible to help us figure out how to get through every grief. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to look in 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and I want to encourage you again, bring your Bibles on the weekend. Even if it's on your phone, that's cool. Just, just, that's the great thing about it. You don't even have to go to the table of contents. You just hit that little magnifying glass. 2 Corinthians 1, you're there. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, just real quickly, I want to remind you, just like we've developed some spiritual muscle memory, we've also learned throughout this series that the Scripture is our food source spiritually. It's the, it's the fuel for our spiritual muscle memory. It's in the scriptures that we discover God's truth, that we discover what reality really is as opposed to our own fads and fashions and opinions and wants and likes and dislikes that ebb and flow so, so swiftly day in and day out. We know that the word of God is a gift from God. We know that it is truth and grace there on the page. And in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church at Corinth. Now, Corinth is a fascinating place. I want you to listen to my description of Corinth and see if it doesn't relate almost identically to Austin 2017. Corinth was a technological and trade center. Corinth was a place that the church was alive and well and, and flourishing, but still struggling with some old habits from its pagan backgrounds. It's amazing if you read through 1 Corinthians, Paul is really reprimanding the church at Corinth, helping them to see that they're, they're trying to live out their faith, but they are missing it in some massive, major ways. The, the church at Corinth, they, they treated communion, it was just like a meal. And, and so people would show up and go, oh, stacks at church, this is awesome. And Paul's like, no, not so much. Let's don't minimize, let's don't degrade the communion table in that way. There were some other things that, was going, that were going on in Corinth that the Apostle Paul had to step up and correct. Again, as I said, it's coming out of this polytheistic pagan environment there in Corinth, and a lot of their old worship habits 
were seeping into their new worship services as they worshiped Jesus. Some of the things that were going on in Greece in that time seeped into the Christian church, even so much as the church at Corinth sometimes would allow and encourage temple prostitution to happen in their Christian worship services. Paul was like, man, thanks for playing. No, we're not going there. We're not going to do that. That is not a godly expression of worship. So that was a lot of 1 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing this letter to kind of mend some fences that the Corinthians' behavior had damaged initially. You, you kind of, it's kind of like, how many of you are parents in the room? Let me just see a show of hands if you're a mom or a dad. Have you, as a parent, ever gotten so angry that you sent your kids to their room? Not like for timeout, but like for their own safety. You know what I'm talking about? Where you're just like... You, you need to leave me now. You know what I'm talking about? Where you just like, like you just like snap. You're trying not to snap. I've never done that, but I'll pray for you who laughed. And, and you know, hopefully and prayerfully you kind of, you know, de-escalate a little bit and, and you come down off of the ceiling and, and you, you call the kids back into the room and you're like, hey, listen, I just, I just want you to know you messed up. And, and as dad or, or mom, it's, it's my job to, to make sure you understand that that kind of behavior, those kind of choices are not acceptable, not just in this house, but for your life. And, and I want you to know, I, I was really, really angry with you, but, but nothing, nothing that you ever do is going to make me love you any less. So let's just make, let's just start afresh and anew. You don't be stupid. I won't be angry and we'll just move on together. You know what I'm talking about? Well, that's the exact tone that the Apostle Paul is taking with the church in Corinth here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He's he's saying, let's let's move past 1 Corinthians. Let's get past some of that elementary stuff we had to get corrected in in your worship, in your lives, and all those things. And let's, let's, let's move forward. And it's here in 2 Corinthians 1 that this godly, this godly, paradigm for processing pain is laid out and given to us as something that you and I can use right here and right now. Second Corinthians chapter one, this is what the Bible says. Paul begins and he says, listen, all praise to God, all worship to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful father and the source of all comfort. Say all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. So it's important for us to remember when we grieve, when when we hurt, when we mourn, when, when when we're weighed down, God is the source of all comfort. No matter how the comfort gets delivered, if it's real comfort, it comes from God. It may come through a song. It may come from scripture. It may come from a conversation with somebody else. But ultimately, all real comfort comes from God. It does not come from a drug. It does not come from a bottle. It cannot come from a computer screen. It only comes comes from God. And so when we understand that, 
It, it helps us to understand that real comforting, real moving through and past pain it is something that God is always involved in. Always. But, but there's a second thing going on here. He says, not only is God the source of all comfort, he comforts us in all our troubles. He comforts. Tell your neighbor with passion and enthusiasm like you mean it right now. He comforts. That was really pretty good. That was awesome. Matter of fact, tell your second choice neighbor now. Do the same thing to that other person. Tell him, he comforts. That pronoun is critical. He comforts. It doesn't say it comforts. It doesn't say that this piece of knowledge, this source of information comforts. It says he comforts. God's comfort is always relational. God's comfort is relational. It's never informational. It's never educational. There are some facts and some, some principles, even some doctrines that, that matter. But in the midst of hurting, in the midst of pain, all comfort comes through relationship. It, it comes from somebody. When you hurt, you don't want somebody to walk up to you and give you a list of all the reasons why bad things happen to good people and here's how you're going to get through this. Nobody wants that. You, you don't want somebody to, to show up, and, and no matter how deeply you love the Scriptures, you don't need pat answers and Scriptures quoted to you. You need a friend. You, you need somebody to come alongside you. And just basically, you need somebody to say, hey, I love you. You're not crazy, and you're not alone. That's, that's what we need when we're looking for that comfort from God. It is that relational thing. That's what, that's what God does. That's what he asks us do, to do for each other. Long, 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 long time ago, when our kids were very, very young, they were playing out in the driveway one day, and, and Julie, my wife, was there with them, and Joseph was, was trying to keep up with some of the older kids in the neighborhood. He was about three, three and a half years old, and as he was running to try to keep up with him, he just face-planted in the driveway. I mean, just went down hard. Knees, you know, cheeks scratched up. And Julie, being the first grade teacher that she was, she kind of hung back a little bit. And she didn't, she didn't run over immediately. Oh, what's wrong? She just she kind of wanted to see how he would process the pain. And, and uh, she said, and she said as, she, as he stood up, she could see his knees were, were scraped. And she goes, that, that's going to be bad. And then she saw the cheek you know, little little abrasion. She went, oh, that's going to be bad too. And then she saw some on his nose and his forehead. She, yeah, that, that's going to be bad too. And, and as he was standing up, she could see him winding up. You know that wind up the kids have right before they just wail when they just let it fly? She could see, it was just winding up. And, and before he really, really got going, she was sitting off to the side. She said, hey, Joseph, Buddy, come tell me about it. She figured if he could walk, he'll survive. So he, he walks over to her, and while he's walking to her, <laughs> and the wind-up begins to come out, and he just lets it fly, and, and she, she takes him in her arms, and, and she holds him there on the driveway, and she goes, oh, buddy, I'm so sorry. And through the 
big crocodile, three-year-old tears, Joseph said this, I do not forgive you. (laughs) You see, Joseph had a toddler's understanding of comfort. He thought that Julie was apologizing for causing him to fall in the driveway. But what Julie was was communicating was what every good parent communicates. When you hurt, I hurt. So I'm sorry. I'm, you know, Julie has told me before that moms, you know, they feel umbilically connected to their kids long after they come into the world. And and she said, you know, when 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 Joseph would jump off of a fence, I I felt my stomach drop. I, you know, as a mom, you you just feel those things. But how much more? perfectly does our perfect heavenly father hurt when we hurt he comforts us in all of our troubles he is the one that that when we hurt he, he wants us to come to him he wants us to lean into him so that he can comfort us relationally he didn't cause the pain sometimes we're the ones who cause the pain so sometimes the pain is caused by other people but he is the one as the perfect father who, who wants to comfort us. But there's another part of the paradigm that, that I think a lot of times we miss if we ever really knew about it at all. And if you, if you stop right here, you fall short of the full healing comfort of God. You, you stop short of part of this paradigm that God lays out. He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. God comforts us so that we can comfort other people. See, here, here's what I do. This, this is just me. There are a lot of times when I look back, when, when I have hurt, when I have grieved, when I felt a, a sense of loss or something, and I, I'm like, God, just make it stop. Just make it go away. I'm tired of taking the high road. God, I, I'm, I'm tired of hurting, tired of grieving. Just, just God, do something, please. And God hears that prayer. But part of what God calls me to, as part of the healing, comforting paradigm, is to stand up and step outside my pain and go find someone else to help. Go find someone to serve with the comfort that he is or has given me. I've shared with you all many times before that our family growing up, we, I was a product of divorce. My mom and dad divorced. We had, I have two brothers. They were married for 18 years. My dad hit the eject button, hit a do-over and, and started over and kind of did all that thing. But There's no question at all, no question, after four years of seminary, after 25 years of preaching and studying God's Word, there is no question that my parents' divorce was not God's will. There there was no part of God's perfect plan in heaven where he decreed that Tom and Linda Richard should get married, have children, and then after 18 years, just blow it all up. That's not how God operates. 
But, everybody say but. but. This is a great but. <laughs> but, I do also know, beyond any shadow of a doubt, after four years of seminary, 25 years of preaching and studying God's Word, and 38 years since my dad walked out, that God in His absolute sovereignty, in His unconditional love, in His perfect, absolute power and amazing grace, God was able to take that which was not part of His perfect will and use it for good in my life and God willing through my life. When our family survived and got through that swamp, I was able to step back and look and see, look at what God did. Look at the people he brought around us. Look at the way he provided for our family. Look at the way that he brought healing. Look at the way that we are now a family again. My parents never remarried. My dad passed away when I was in college. But I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is good. And God will heal whatever hurts. That's who he is. It's what he does. And it isn't just my life. I've seen too many to count. I've seen marriages that were literally aiming for the rocks, pulled back from the brink and healed and saved, not just to survive and stay together for the kids, but to thrive and to flourish in the comfort and healing of God Almighty. But it requires people to get out of themselves and offer the comfort that we have been comforted with to those who need comfort. And this is a critical part. The sooner you start helping other people, the sooner you start healing. The sooner we start healing because that's how God set this whole thing up. It's how he structured this paradigm of processing pain. But Paul's not done yet. Look in verse 5. He says, now just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. Again, it's This isn't about me. This is about getting outside of myself. This is about moving past the pain to serve others, to help others. Verse 8, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Some of us have been there. Some of us have have hurt so deeply, so Profoundly, Some of us maybe haven't been there yet, but, but you will get there. Maybe, maybe you won't, but maybe you will. Where, where you hurt so deeply you cannot imagine getting through it. 
You, you can't imagine coming out on the other side. Much less coming out on the other side. You can't even imagine a light at the end of the tunnel. But did you see you're in good company? That, that's what the Apostle Paul experienced. He says, we were so distressed under great pressure beyond our ability, beyond Paul's ability to endure. We despaired of life. We thought we had received the sentence of death. Now, I'm certainly not a, a trained clinician. I'm not, a, I'm not a licensed therapist by any stretch. But that sounds to me, that sounds like a very real sense of depression. If you're worried about being able to even survive grief and sorrow, is there going to be a tomorrow? I don't know what else you would call that. And, and I certainly don't celebrate that Paul went through that. But don't you, don't you think there's a little bit of encouragement that, that you can kind of go, man, if Paul, super apostle, <laughs> I mean, church planner, writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, if Paul went through that, and we know that Paul got through that, then, then maybe there really is a light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe... Maybe I really can get through that. And maybe Paul is somebody that, that I can look to. I, I can look at what he wrote in the Bible and I can go, it's possible. I, I, I can get through this grief or this sorrow. I, I can get through this tragedy. And I can look at the Apostle Paul and go, well, you know what? If nothing else, I know that I'm not alone. I'm not the only one who has felt this way. Don't, don't miss this because it's about to get even better. Because Paul wasn't the only one in the Bible who went through that. You know who else did? Jesus. Jesus went through that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Immediately after that first Lord's Supper, he, he was with his, his closest followers. And he knew that he was about to experience the worst betrayal the world has ever known. You want to start a fascinating conversation with, with a friend, somebody that you know, just ask them, have you ever been betrayed? Boy, eyes light. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt. Any betrayal we experience, it's real, and man, it hurts. And it pales in comparison to the betrayal Jesus experienced. Jesus was perfect. And yet Judas betrayed him with a kiss. With a kiss. That, that's the thing about betrayal. The only people who can betray us are the people who are close enough to kiss us. It's the people we trust. It's the, it's the people we love. It's the people we never see it coming. And Jesus knew that this was about to happen. He knew that he was about to be tried in a couple of kangaroo courts. He knew that he was about to be beaten and about to be whipped. He knew that he was going to the cross. And that the, the physical pain and the, the excruciating torment was going to pale in comparison to what he would go through spiritually. He, he knew that all this was coming and 
These are Jesus' words in the garden there, Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew 26, he told them, his closest followers, he said, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus said that. I don't think Jesus was being dramatic. <laughs> I don't think Jesus was overselling his pain. He was just calling it like it was. He said, my, my, my soul is crushed to the point of death. I am so overwhelmed with sorrow. And, and, and he asked him, he said, just stay here with me. And those closest followers promptly went and took a nap. What Jesus went through in that garden was merely preparatory for what would happen on the third day. Because Jesus also knew in the moment, in that moment, he knew the fact was that death would not be able to contain him, that he would escape the grave, that he would defeat death, that he would subdue sin, and he would rise on the third day. And that is why in the book of John, chapter 16, he told his disciples, I've told you all these things so that in me you will have peace, because in this world you will have trouble. But, everybody say but. but. He said, but, take heart. For I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. Take heart. You know what take heart is? Be encouraged. Encourage. I love the word encouragement. It means to fill with courage. Courage. The word courage comes from the same word that we get the word heart for. Courage. Courage in France. Spanish, mi corazón. It's courage. Take heart. You choose because Jesus said, I have overcome the world. Now, here's what's interesting about that. When Jesus said that in John chapter 16, he had not yet been crucified. And if he hadn't been crucified, then he certainly hadn't been resurrected yet. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew. Jesus knew in advance what you and I know with hindsight that he rose again. Jesus knew that God so loved the world that whoever believes in him would never die but would have eternal life, the life that is truly life because Jesus rose from the dead. That it's singular anchoring event that you and I celebrate 42 days from right now that we look to as the hope not only for our faith but the hope for everything that we do that this is our reality this is what God has called us to live out because Jesus has overcome the world and so we have this comfort we had this comfort that there is no grief, there is no sorrow, there's no tragedy, no trauma beyond the reach of God's amazing grace. And particularly as it relates to marriage, 
I can't think of a better word for husbands and wives, for prospective husbands and wives to live by than grace. Just grace. We know we, we, know we want it, but, but to give it, to, to extend it. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. And as you bow your heads, I want to ask you to really consider grace. Not just in marriage, but, but grace in general. And I want to ask you to, to ignore every single distraction in your mind, in your life, anything in this room. Just focus on grace for just a moment. The word grace means it's a gift. You don't deserve a gift. It's a gift that, that God extends in Jesus. And so it's a gift that certainly deserves a response. I wanted this morning if if you're here or maybe watching online, have you ever responded to God's gift of grace in Jesus? Because just as God comforts us relationally, he extends this grace relationally. If you're here today and you've never responded, you've never received that grace and started to live your life in a relationship with God, we want to give you the opportunity to do that just right now. Right where you're sitting. Just to begin. Just by praying a prayer of commitment, a prayer of beginning from your heart to God's, just silently say something like this as you talk to God. Just silently say, Jesus, I need you. And I accept this gift of you. This gift of grace. Of forgiveness. Jesus, I confess my sin. And I will follow you from this moment forward. You are the Lord of my life. You are the director from this moment forward. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. with our heads bowed and our eyes closed for just a brief moment. If that was your prayer today and you meant it, then you need to know this is the biggest moment of your life. It's the moment upon which God will build everything else that comes. 
And we want to be a church family to you, a family of faith with you. And so I want to ask you to help us get that process started. We, we can't do that if we don't know. So just take the program that you got when you came in and fill out that connect card that's inside the program. Name, contact, and about halfway down, there's a place to mark, I committed my life to Christ this week. And I know sometimes there's, there's a hesitation maybe to, to fill something out. But this is, this is the way that the process Starts. This is how you begin to be a part of the family of faith. Nobody's going to show up on your doorstep or anything like that. We just want to, we just want to help. So we honor that in, in your life. And second, I want to ask you, if, if that was your prayer today and you meant it, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, would you just raise your hand for a moment? Just, just quietly but unmistakably raise your hand and hold it up for just a moment. So exciting. This is why we exist as a church. There's nothing more important than this moment in your life. And by raising your hand, you stamp this moment for yourself, but also in the life of this church. It's a big deal. And so as you put your hands down, we put our hands together just to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home. It's exciting. 